Tonight we are uh, finishing the, this letter of 1 Peter. We've uh, been just going verse by verse through it this semester. It's been a lot of fun for me because I know what's coming next week. It's the next set of verses. That's been nice. Um, for you, you may be uh, tired of hearing about suffering. But um, really, the, the Bible is kind of full of these stories. We're going to talk a little bit finally tonight uh, for the last time about this. And so we're going to um, address in this final piece of this letter... Peter is looking at uh, the recipients of this letter. Remember the churches in kind of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey? And he's looking at them, and in his last kind of final charge, he's saying, look, here's what the normal Christian life looks like. Okay? And what he does, and we're not going to spend a lot of time, really much time at all, talking about verses 1 through 5, but he sets it up, and he starts talking about elders and, and the role of elders and how they're supposed to shepherd the flock. And then he looks at the people, the younger people, and says, look, submit yourselves to the elders. In other words, the normal Christian life is played out in the local church. That it's not super spiritual to kind of go off and be a, a, a lone ranger Christian. In fact, the Bible has, really has no category for that. It places the normal Christian life uh, in, in the midst of a local church and a local community. And so we're not going to talk a lot about that, but I wanted to mention that. And at the very end, he gives a closing greeting and kind of says hey to a few people and that stuff. But we're going to spend the, most of our, the majority of our time in verses 6 through 11. So if you would, let's um, give our attention to it. It's on page 658 in the Bible provided for you. Or on your iPhone, it is three buttons this way and three that way. And then you'll be there. That's hilarious. That's really funny. Sorry. <laughs> so, First uh, Peter chapter 5, we're going to read the whole chapter. It's only about 13, 14 verses long. So let's give attention. This is God's Word. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let me pray for us real quick, and then we'll talk about it for a minute. God, we pray that you would meet us again here tonight, as you have been so faithful to do this whole semester, teaching us from your word, guiding us, instructing us, calling us to look and consider Jesus who gave himself for us. I pray that you would now do that again for one last time, 
You send Your Spirit to awaken our hearts, to stir within us that we might see our need for Jesus. And Father, I pray that Jesus would appear more beautiful tonight than He ever has before. I pray these things in His name. Amen. Last weekend, Sarah and I drove down to uh, Dallas. I had a speaking engagement. Actually, it turns out it wasn't much of a speaking engagement at all. But I was present at a church on Sunday morning. And, um, like, I didn't prepare a sermon for it. I was doing something in a youth group. (laughs) Just kidding, you're not preaching. Um, So, uh, on the way down, we left Friday afternoon and we dropped our kids off uh, with my parents in South Oklahoma. And uh, I don't know if y'all were outside much Friday afternoon, uh, last Friday afternoon, but the storms were crazy. Um, We left Tulsa and we got on uh, Turner Turnpike heading towards Oklahoma City. And we were, you know, it's kind of one of those things that you're thinking, man, there could be tornadoes here. So we found the radio station, uh, the first one that had news people on it, and we were listening. And sure enough, there's uh, some guy going berserk over a tornado, you know. She's like, just tell me where it is. I know. Just tell me. Um, Well, we found out that it was off in Shawnee, which was, uh, as we were driving down the turnpike, was off to our left. And so we looked over there, and sure enough, I mean, the clouds were massive, just black and blue clouds, and even in front of us a little bit, and that's kind of why we were worried, is we just wanted to make sure there wasn't anything that we were driving into. And, um, you know, I, I think that as, as, as I thought about that storm and as I thought about this passage, I think for most of us, um, that's a little bit like our experience in the Christian life. That, you see, we were safe in our car. We could see danger off to the side. And even when we got into Oklahoma City, it started raining pretty hard. And a guy in front of us, his car spun out and he went off into the ditch. But for a lot of us, the Christian life feels pretty sterile. Like we can just kind of go through, kind of doing our thing. And uh, really no real harm befalls us. Nothing really difficult happens to us. It's just kind of off to the side. Or maybe it's happening to someone else around us. And for that reason... We really struggle a lot of times when we read the Bible. Because the writers of Scripture and the the message of the Bible is, is really framed in the context of them saying, look, the Christian life is not easy. It's hard. And Peter has talked for five chapters now about suffering, very in-depth about what that might look like. And for us sitting in Tulsa, we have a hard time connecting with that so often. So again, for many of us, the Bible feels irrelevant. And for a lot of us, our faith is just kind of, eh, it's kind of whatever. You know, sometimes maybe at RUF or if you go to church or uh, you're kind of alive then. But for the most part, it feels like just something that's out there that's kind of off to the side. Or that maybe a friend of ours is, is having something going on like the car in front of us and he's spinning out of control. Well... I assume, or the, the Bible writers assume, and the reason it doesn't make sense is they assume that when someone is brought back into relationship with God through what Jesus has done, that naturally we are not in relationship with God because of sin, but if someone is brought back into relationship with God through what Jesus has done, they assume that the person's life is going to be difficult. That is part of their assumption, and that is part of um, why Peter writes this way. It's part of why so many of the Bible writers, uh, the biblical writers, are addressing people in suffering. And they assume... That if you have a relationship with God through Jesus, then the way you think about money, the way you think about time, the way you think about relationships, the way you approach your vocation and your calling, 
the way you approach your friendships, your family, your hopes, your dreams, they are assuming that all of those things are about to become difficult. Because you see, what happens is that we want naturally, we kind of want to have ultimate say over all of those things. I don't want someone to come in and be able to say, look, I'm staking claim to that in your life. I kind of want to do what I want to do. I think most of y'all are the same way. But when we're in a relationship with God, He comes in and says, you know what? I bought you. And I'm redeeming you from that because that living for yourself in those ways is ultimately going to harm you. It's not going to be for your good. And so when, we, when we're brought back in a relationship with God through Jesus, those things begin to be messed up. They begin to kind of be turned on their heads. And so I want to tell you, if you're struggling in the Christian life, you're struggling with any of these things and, and even more things that I didn't mention, then I want you to be encouraged. Because what that means is that the gospel is actually coming and making a difference in your life. And the gospel is rubbing up against kind of your natural tendencies. Following Jesus then is more like the storm than it is the calm. It's more like the storm than it is the calm. But in the gospel message, the calm is coming. It is absolutely coming. We have to embrace for the storm if we're ever to experience the calm though. So what we're going to do in the way that uh, Peter sets this up, we're going to look at it through three different things. Peter gives three different encouragements to the final encouragements to this group of believers, to this, to this church. And the first one he gives them is an encouragement toward humility. The second is an encouragement toward alertness. And the third one is an encouragement toward resistance or being watchful and careful. Okay, so first, let's look at this encouragement toward humility. I'm going to reread verses 6 and 7. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Humility is a weird thing. It's a weird thing because it sounds so wonderful. We kind of, that is something that I would venture to say all of us want to say, man, I want to be humble. Like, I want people to say that about me, that my life is characterized by humility, that it's overflowing. So it sounds really great, but it's, quite honestly, it's, it's always a little confusing. Because how do you get to be humble? Right? How do you get that? Most other things you can kind of work toward. And you can go out and do something and therefore you attain it. Humility is kind of the opposite. It's something that, in a sense, is given to you. It's something that is a product of another change that happens in you or something like that. Right? I mean, you don't go out and say, whoop, look at me, I am so humble. I look at all this great stuff that I did for my friends. Look at how much I've served the old women in the church and all this stuff. Guess I'm pretty humble now. That's ridiculous. So, um, how, how does Peter think about humility? We should consider that first. Peter, in writing this passage, definitely had in mind some of Jesus' teachings. In Luke chapter 18, let me tell you the story Jesus is talking about a parable. And he gives this parable, and he quotes part of, well, Peter quotes what Jesus said. Um, Jesus says that two men went up into the temple to pray, and that one was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. No, not one of us in here would look at him and say, man, that guy's really humble. He's really got it. Jesus continues and says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus continues and says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, which means right with God, rather than the other. Jesus finishes, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So for a Christian then, I'm not assuming all of you are, and that's fine, but for a Christian, humility is not self-generated. It can't be. If it's self-generated, then you're a Pharisee, and Pharisees aren't Christians. Right? Legalists, those who want to be self-righteous instead of righteous through Jesus, are not Christians. And Jesus makes that very clear. True biblical humility comes from an utter dependence on the grace of God. What does the, the tax collector do? He stands up and says, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. All he says about himself, the Pharisee gives his list and his resume of accomplishments. The only thing the tax collector is claiming is that he's messed up. That I am not good. I have not done any of those things. But I am a sinner. God, have mercy on me. Jesus says that man goes home and is restored to God. He is justified. So if you want to know what humility looks like, find someone who has a profound sense and understanding of their own sin of their own neediness, of their own brokenness, of their own lack of being righteous on their own. And that person will see, likewise, a profound trust in Jesus, a profound hope in the gospel of grace, which says, you can't do it, you can never do it, you can't do enough good things in a whole lifetime to make you right with God. You have to see yourself as needy, as a needy sinner who needs Jesus. And when you get that, when someone gets that, humility begins to settle in. Because it doesn't make sense, right? If if you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner, it sounds foolish to go out and start talking about how great you are. That's a a non-sequitur. It simply doesn't work. Peter goes on here in this passage, though, there at the end, and he connects humility with anxiety. I think this is fascinating. He connects being humble with this casting your anxieties on God because He cares for us. He's saying that as we rely on God, we can literally, it's like tie an apron. We can tie our anxieties onto God. That we don't have to carry them anymore. And for those of you in here who struggle with anxiety and who have, uh, maybe in the times past, who are currently struggling with this, you're thinking, that sounds awesome. I would love to just be able to give those to somebody. But in reality, it's not quite that easy. It's not quite that easy. But how can we trust God? How could we do that? He says, look, God cares for you. You can trust Him. It's not easy, but you can trust Him. Let's think about Peter's own story and his own anxiety. If you'll remember, you may or may not remember this, but... Toward the end of Jesus' life, it's kind of Jesus' big farewell party, and he's looking around at all of his disciples and his followers and saying, Everyone's going to abandon me. Everyone's going to leave me. And Peter, doing a very Peter thing, stands up and says, Not me, Jesus. 
Not me. I'm here for the long haul. I will be with you. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, you are going to deny me three times before tomorrow morning. And so as the story goes, before the rooster crows, as the story goes, Peter did it. He denied Jesus. People, people asked him if he was with Jesus. He said, no. I don't know him. No. And the rooster crowed and Peter realized, oh my gosh. I just left the man that I said that I would never leave. Think about this. The rooster crowed every single day. Friends, every single day, Peter was reminded of his failure, of his sin, of his shame, of his utter looking at Jesus and lying to him. Now, if that's not anxiety producing, then I don't know what is. The, to this constant reminder of something that has been done, that you've done wrong in your past, or that's been done to you in your past. Whatever this is, as it comes up, our hearts begin to beat fast. And we begin to work ourselves into this frenzy of, of utter paralyzation. We can't do anything with it. And Peter's looking and saying, Friends, I know something about anxiety. And he's testifying and saying, You can trust God. You can put your anxiety on Him. He cares for you. He can begin to take that away from you. He can begin to melt that, tie it onto Him. See, Peter's story is that Jesus came back after the resurrection and restored him. He said, Peter, lead my sheep, tend my flock, be one of my faithful servants, be an elder among these people. And so he did. Jesus didn't need a together Peter. He used a forgiven Peter. So I want us to see that humility then is not something that good people have. Humility is not something that together people possess. It is not something the self-righteous have. It is something that people have when they know that their goodness or their righteousness or anything that's good about them comes from the outside. It is not self-generated. It comes from the outside. And when you realize that that's true of you, that who you are before God and your right standing with God through Jesus has been given to you, friends, you can't be prideful about the fact you're a Christian. You can't look down on those people around you who do things that you may not approve of. We can't judge others from a position of righteousness because... It's not self-righteousness. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It was given to you. And so that moves us out of the world in humility. It allows us to engage with those who we may not agree with on everything. It keeps us from being mad at them and from judging them. So are you proud? Are you proud? Do you generally walk around in most of life thinking, I'm better than, or I'm smarter than, or I'm prettier than, or I'm more together than, or I'm holier than, or whatever. What is it that feeds that deathly pride inside of you? And I mean that. I want you all to think about that. In what ways do you find yourselves really getting annoyed with people? And in that place, I simply want you to invite Jesus to come in and remind you what's true. That outside of His grace and mercy, if you're a Christian then you are just like everyone else, if not worse. Anything that is good about us comes from Christ and His work in us. 
So the gospel calls us to acknowledge and confess and turn from ourselves in a self-exaltation to humility and to being exalted by God and let Him lift us up. Secondly, uh, it calls us toward alertness. Peter says in verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. He says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's saying, Don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. Be alert. Stay alert. The devil is real. If you're a Christian, we have a real enemy. And Peter says he's like a lion who is out there just waiting for you to not be looking. He's waiting for you to fall asleep and he's going to come out and devour you. We've all seen those, those shows on Discovery Channel or History Channel where, you know, it's like the little gazelle just like chilling out in the field. And the lion, I mean, we're seeing the lion. We're just like, oh my gosh, that gazelle is dead. It's coming. It's gonna, and it happens. It's like, that's why it's on the Discovery Channel, which is like, watch a lion in its native habitat destroy the gazelle. That's what happens. <laughs> Peter's saying that is what happens with the devil. That, it is, that he is real. And he is just waiting for us to fall asleep. He's waiting for us to just kind of lose consciousness in this life. He's mad. The devil is mad and he's angry. Why? Because he was defeated at the cross. He knows that his game, that his program is a losing game. But he is going to fight like heck until it comes, until Jesus returns. We went and uh, saw Hunger Games last Thursday night, finally. Um, <laughs> it was terrible after having to wait that long. Um, Sarah and I went and saw it with another couple friend of ours, and um, we dressed up. So that was pretty awesome. Um, yeah, nothing like being a junior high when you're 31. Um, so anyway, we dressed up. We went and ate at Sushi Train beforehand, which that place is just awesome and weird. And uh, I recommend it to everyone. But um, then we went to Hunger Games. And, you know, I've re- I read book one. I'm in book two. So I'm not going to speak beyond that because I don't know what happens. And, um, you know, what happens in the Hunger Games if, you know, once they come up out of the ground at, uh, at the Capitol and they're out there in their field... What happens if any one of those 24 tributes just kind of like, eh, I'm fine, I'm just going to like, be over here. They're dead. Like, they're dead instantly. They're going to get their head chopped off or like a, a dart coming. Look. And then I got really mad when um, Katniss and Peter were down by the river where she finds him, and they're like in their cave, and they're having this sweet time. Like, no, stop kissing. Stop kissing. They're going to kill you. Like, they're going to come in the mouth of the cave and get you. Like, I started getting really anxious and, and mad. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was not a fun moment for me. Well, the truth is that most of, most of us, uh, we're not alert in that way. We're not, we don't live like we're in the Hunger Games. We don't live like that there is a real devil out there who just longs to see you devoured. Who longs to come and have your heart. Who longs to come and get you off course. He wants you to be asleep at the wheel. Why? Because he can come and sideswipe you sexually. He can come and bulldoze you through gossip. And just so seamlessly invite you into that. Into a lifestyle of discontentment of just looking at everything you have and all that, you, all that you've been giving, given, and just saying, you know, I don't have enough. I need more. The devil encourages that. He wants that from us. He wants us to be out there, and he longs to see you and to see me asleep at the wheel in the Christian life. 
Because He wants to come in and absolutely destroy us. Nothing would make Him more joyful than to see one of us fall away. To say, you know what? I used to think some of that stuff was true and I used to go to church. I grew up in the church. My parents are Christian. But I just think it doesn't matter anymore. Devil won. He wins. He loves to do that. He longs to see us asleep at the wheel. And I would suggest that the lie above all lies that we're going to be tempted to believe when we're not alert is this. That you don't need God. Because you see, that was the same lie that the devil gave in the very beginning. When he looked at Adam and Eve in the garden and said, you know what? You don't have to follow God. Just go eat of that fruit. You'll be like God. You can be your own gods. And friends, that that line, that temptation from the evil one has the potential to derail you. To think that you can live your life apart from God, just doing whatever you want, kind of making up the rules for for yourself and being okay. He wants you to believe that above all else. Because when you can be your own God, you don't need the true God. And so Peter is looking at them and he's looking at us and he is saying, wake up. The adversary is real and he wants to devour you. He wants to destroy you. Be sober-minded. Saturate your mind and your hearts with the gospel. Saturate your mind with Scripture. Be in fellowship with other Christians. Pray with them. Beg God for His mercy and His protection. And be watchful. Be alert. The devil is real and he wants to devour you. Thirdly, Peter encourages us to resist the devil. He says, no, and he says, resist the devil, verse 9, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He's saying, resist the devil. You are not alone. You are not alone. It is interesting to see that all of these encouragements are plural. All of them is he's looking at a group of people and he's saying, he's saying, be humble. That's plural. We don't see it in English. It's plural. Be humble. Be alert. Be sober-minded. These are all plural. And finally, he's saying, resist him, knowing that you are not alone. I believe that one of the greatest temptations that we will face individually as Christians are not individual little sins that you will be tempted to give into. Although those will be many and they will be fierce, I firmly believe that one of the biggest temptations that we will have is to believe that you are the only one who struggles with what you struggle with. That you are alone. That the stuff that you do is so unique that you can't talk to anyone about it. That it's so embarrassing and so shameful and therefore it makes you so insecure about talking to others that you will never tell anyone about the way that you struggle, about the things that you've been giving into, about the things that you never thought that you would do and are now doing. Because guess what? As long as you believe you're the only one who struggles with that, you will never go tell anyone because you're going to be thinking, you know what? If they find out about the real me, 
if they get to know the me that's in here, not the me that's out here, then they will leave and never come back. And even worse than that, they will leave, never come back, and go tell everyone else about me. And so if the devil can get you to believe that you're alone, and that your struggle is your own, that no one else deals with this, then he will have you. You see, believing the little individual lies and giving into the little individual sins will hurt you. But believing this lie, by believing that you're alone in your struggle with sin, friends, that will cripple you. That will debilitate you in your life. So what does Peter do? He calls us out of it. He calls us in to a life with others. When I was, um, when I was in college and, and beyond, um, I began to, to weave a web of lies about myself. I began to manipulate the people around me in relationships uh, with, with guys and with girls, with my pastor, campus minister. I had such great sexual and relational sin that I was fully convinced that I was the only one who had this set of struggles, who was fallen in this way. And I want to tell you that for a long time, I didn't let anyone into that. And I kind of tried to keep this veneer of togetherness on. I tried to present myself in the best light. I had to try because I knew that if anybody saw what was in here, they wouldn't like it. And then as a relationship of mine that I was in with a girl crumbled um, when I was about 24 or 25, a pastor of mine, um, actually my RUF campus minister from OU, he called me and he, he began to kind of ask me about this stuff. And he simply looked at me and said, Brent... You need help. You need help. You are more broken than you've ever thought. You need help. You need others, he said. You need to let others in to where you are because you're so alone, you're so afraid. And that was absolutely true. But I thought that I was so alone in this that no one else would want to walk with me in it. And I was too ashamed and too insecure and embarrassed to get it out. But I want to tell you that I, I, I listened to him. For some reason, I didn't have anywhere else to go. I was at bottom. I listened to him, and I began to invite others into it and tell them what was going on. I thought it would be terrible. I thought it would be the worst thing that ever happened to me. And in some ways it was because it was painful. But I promise you, what became of it on the other side And having others involved in my life was absolute freedom. Because as I began to share my story and my struggles, as I began to tell others, look, this is what I've been going through, this is what I've been giving into, other people began to come around me and say, I know, me too. Me too. And then I began to talk to other people, and they began to say, you know what, I've never told anybody this. And they'd start telling me their stuff. Friends, there's healing that happens when we let others in. And the devil absolutely does not want that to happen. But what the gospel does is it frees us up to begin to own our sin. To begin to say, you know what? That's true of me. I am that. But by God's grace, I am becoming less that way. And I'm giving that sin over. And hopefully next year, many of you will struggle less with things that you struggle with now. That is actually possible. That is a possibility with the gospel. 
If you're not a Christian, or if you're struggling with faith and what that means for you, I would encourage you to bring this out into the open. To grab me or to grab a friend, grab others, and begin to talk through this. Share your questions or your doubts. Put it out there. You see, we all have blind spots. And by definition, we don't know that they're there. We're blind to them. Let others have their eyes on them so that they may see. If you're a Christian tonight and you're struggling with sin, if you're struggling with things that you swore you'd never do again or that you never ever do, and you're full of that shame and that embarrassment, I'm going to ask you something so very serious. Why are you so afraid from telling others? What would it be like to be able to share that burden with someone else and to invite them in? Yes, it may be a little scary on the front end. But friends, to let someone else help you carry that burden is what the church is about. It's what all of this is about. We cannot do it alone. We were never meant to. We were created relationally and we are not meant to do this thing independently. So the gospel frees us and empowers us to resist the devil and his powerful schemes by turning to others and inviting others into it. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So that's the storm that Peter sets out there. And he says, look, that's the normal Christian life. It's hard. But the truth is this, that in the gospel, there is a calm that comes after the storm. In verse 10 and 11, says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Peter says there are four things that happen when the calm comes. They're simply this. He looks and he says, When the storm of this life is over, you will be restored. Friends, are you beat down? Are you broken? Are you tired from the journey that is the Christian life? Are you weary? The promise of the gospel is that you will be restored. And then he looks up and he says, you will be confirmed. Do you feel like a Christian that is constantly being blown around by the wind? That you're kind of wishy-washy? And some days you love Jesus and it matters, and other days you don't even know if you're a Christian. That you're all over the place. Peter says, one day you will be confirmed. You will be rooted. You will be made firm, it means. And then he goes on to say, you will be strengthened. Right now is not the time of strength. Most of us, many of us, are weak and weary. We're affected by the fall. Sin has taken its toll on us. We are tired. We're exhausted. Peter says, one day you will be strengthened. And finally, he says, you will be established. You will one day be made secure forever. This insecurity that we so struggle with in this life, this waffling between feeling like that it all makes sense and that I can share these things with other people and then at other times thinking, I absolutely can't tell anyone this because my insecurity is driving me into isolation. Friends, one day that will be gone. You will be established. You will be made secure. The promise of the gospel is one day you will be fully restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. But here is an even better news. That that hope isn't only for the future. 
isn't only for the future. God promises that if you believe this gospel, if you acknowledge yourself to be more sinful than you ever dared believe, but more redeemed and forgiven and loved and accepted and approved of in Christ than you could ever hope for, if you believe that, then God says that He sends seeds of His eternal glory. That very picture of restoration, He sends seeds of that into your heart right now. He sends His Spirit into us to convince us that this is true. He puts that eternal glory within us. Last fall, and I'll close with this, last fall some of us went to Joplin to help do some tornado relief. And we worked with and through a guy there named Reed Dunn, who's a pastor at Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Joplin. And we went and worshipped with Reed at his church on Sunday morning. And he was talking about a story and gave a story about he and his wife, Leanne, they were in the process of adopting a baby from Ethiopia. And they had received the paperwork and the pictures and all these things. And so they knew that this child was theirs, right? And there was a waiting, a time of waiting. And in that time, he tells a story that he and his wife and their kids they already had, they took a little stuffed animal and they kept this animal with them and they slept with it and they would pass it around and kind of, they lived with this animal. And, and what he wanted to do is get their smells on the animal. And then they took the animal and sent it over to that child in Ethiopia. <laughs> So that child could begin to experience his new family now. That he could start getting used to what was going to be true of him in just a few short months. Friends, that's what happens in the gospel. There is a one day full deliverance that is coming. A full restoration. A full strengthening. A full adoption. A full establishing. But right now, Through faith, if we believe this is true, God sends His Spirit. He sends the smells of the eternal glory that is destined to be ours. He sends them in and He awakens the senses of our heart so that we might begin to experience that now. And friends, when you get that, when you get the smell of the Gospel, you will never want to go back to where you came from simply want to ask for the last time this semester, do you know that Jesus? Do you know the fragrance of the gospel? And is it sweet to you? If it is, embrace Christ. Never leave Him. Every bit of suffering you experience will be worth it. Because your Father is coming to get you.